Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about South Asian people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hear it every Monday, Tuesday on Ruckus Avenue Radio or wherever you get your podcast. As a South Asian American and a pediatrician, when I first heard that a children's book called Foja Singh Keeps Going had been written about the resilience and determination of a 100-year-old sick marathon runner, I was grateful to see the story and what it represented. But I was even more thrilled to meet and chat with the author, Professor Simranjit Singh, who is a writer, scholar, and activist living in New York. His expertise is diverse, and he leads conversations on equity, justice, and compassion. His course on anti-racism as a spiritual practice is being taught this fall at Columbia University and has a companion web series called Becoming Less Racist. Simon grew up as a Sikh American in San Antonio, Texas, and now serves on President-elect Joe Biden's Asian American Pacific Islander Faith Advisory Committee. In tackling the deep work of building empathy in our communities, Simran has many, many roles, and we started chatting about how that dynamic couples with being an effective listener. Being so dynamic and being uh, wearing so many different hats, is that hard to project while also being uh, an active listener and having that sort of compassion and empathy at the same time? Um, well, the, the first part of it is, is hard to, to square sometimes because, you know, you have, like all of us, we have so many, we have so many identities and, and they're all competing with one another constantly. It's, it's hard to know who you are sometimes and, and yeah. what comes first, um, you know, especially uh, for, for, I think for a lot of us, the, the human aspects of our identity, right? Like a relationships, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a father, I'm a husband, like those those feel more significant than the professional ones. So, so yeah, that, that part is hard. I think the the second part of your question around is it is it hard to square those with compassion and listening? I don't I don't think so. I think maybe maybe this is just the way that I'm wired or the way I've been raised or, or something. But um, I think part of being multiple and seeing your own multiplicity. Um, it creates a sense of humility in you that says, um, I'm definitely not the best at any of the things that I do. Right. Um, and so I, there, there's always so much more to learn. And I, I, I definitely take that from, from my tradition too, which, you know, the word sick means uh, student, a learner. And, and, and part of our wisdom teaching is uh, to always engage in, in active learning. And so I, I think that creates a nice little mindset for these relationships. When when you're having conversations in so many different arena, trying to really engage in your work, have you found that you know that there's a there's a tangible sometimes um, advancement of that empathy, that compassion? Because I can I would assume that some of those conversations are are very tough and challenging um, to have, especially if you're trying to bring uh, an audience or another uh, person to a different level of that compassion and empathy. Yeah, it's a great question, um, and I like I like how you phrased it. You you asked if there's a tangible outcome, as opposed to a lot a lot of times people, and especially uh, grantors or, or employers, right. will ask for for metrics, right? Like yeah. empirical, quantitative, and, and and you know this is not that kind of thing. I can't walk away from a conversation and tell you this person is, 
you know, six units yeah. more, more of the compassion than they were before. Um, but there's definitely, a, you know, the part of what makes this work rewarding is that there is some tangible outcome and, and palpable, like you can feel it. Um, and, and a lot of the times that that feeling comes through body language. Usually it comes through body language. Um, you can, you can tell by the way people make eye contact with you. You can, I mean, just think about any relationship. You can tell if somebody has uh, respect for you just by the way they, they look at you and engage with you and how they address you, right? Like the, the types of questions they ask. And so I, I do notice those things change and, you know, it might be um, that I'm sensitive to those aspects because of the way that I've been racialized. And <laughs> I imagine you, you would be the same way that you, you can tell when people uh, dislike you on the basis of how you look or where you're from or whatever. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's definitely noticeable when, when that shifts. And, um, and I think that's, I, that's what I love about teaching in general. I think I try and look at everything that I do through the lens of education um, and, and that ability to help somebody open up their mind and get from, I mean, it's not like, it's not linear. I, w I wouldn't say it's point A to point B, but to get from a place of closed-mindedness to open-mindedness, even if it's incremental, uh, that feels really meaningful. And when you are having these kinds of conversations with people um, of very, very diverse backgrounds, do you find that there has to actually be a discipline and an iteration to becoming more empathic or compassionate or broadening your view? Is there is there actually some rigor that has to be put to that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I appreciate you digging a little deeper. I think you know, one of, one of the things that I've learned um, in doing this work and, you know, I'm, I'm teaching this course and I, and I have this show called uh, Anti-Racism as a Spiritual Practice. And, and the way that I even came to that model was so often in these spaces, people come to the room ready to teach or ready to lecture. And I was finding that, you know, for one, it wasn't, having the type of impact uh, on those in the room that I wanted, but also it wasn't really doing much for me either. And so to change the model into one where we all go on a journey together, and you know, it might be the case that I know a bit more history or a bit more um, you know, policy around certain things around the areas where I specialize in, um, but to come to the table as if I, I know everything there is to know and I've solved all my problems is, is completely disingenuous and that doesn't serve me and it doesn't serve the people that I'm, that I'm working with. And so um, what, what, I've, what I've really come to learn is uh, the vulnerability, uh, the humility, I, I think it would go back to that, right? Humility allows for vulnerability and, and the, the humility to be able to acknowledge that I, I may be an expert in my field, but I don't know everything there is to know. Um, and I certainly don't have a lot of the experiences uh, that a lot of uh, that other people have that I can learn from. Uh, that that creates a certain sense of openness, but also rigor, and 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 even a yearning for. I mean, I want to know what those experiences are like. I want to know what it's like uh, to walk in the shoes of a of a black man in this country, mm -hmm. or as an indigenous person in this country, or as a trans woman in this country. You know, like. I don't have those. I, I, I want to be empathetic. Like I, I find those to be important qualities. And so how do I access those? It needs to be a decentering of myself in order to center someone else's experiences. 
And I, I wonder, so in, in medicine, and particularly in the learning environment, we have this whole concept of entrustment. And, and I'm so curious, meaning that, you know, you might walk into a, um, an office or a hospital, and as a physician or a provider, you are entrusted with some significant responsibilities that are progressively um, building as you go through the care of someone. And, and so I wonder if that curiosity that you're talking about, that, that deep yearning to try and understand what it's like to be in someone else's shoes, do you find that that, that curiosity um, enables uh, you to be more entrustable to the people that you work with? Yeah, I think, I think it does. Um, and I'll say um, I, I tend to be dispositionally a, a trusting person and you know that's maybe, maybe part nature but certainly part nurture um, and it's something that I've really wanted to preserve in, in my own personality and in my worldview and so it it comes to bite me sometimes right there there have been times where um, I've I've trusted where I shouldn't have there are times when I'm trusting when I know that it's risky, uh, yeah. that, I, that I don't know people as well as I do, and, and, I, yeah. and I want to have that faith in people. Um, but but I, I, I choose to live that way uh, consciously because I, I really want to believe in, in the goodness of people, um, and I want to hold on to that. And so there's this really interesting, I mean, I've just, it's, it's interesting you ask because I've been exploring this part of my own psychology recently mm -hmm. um, based on some some decisions that I've that I've made that I that I've been questioning <laughs> because yeah. I've trusted people too much. But, but the but the upside though, and, and this is what you're pointing to, is when you get into the spaces where um, where you really can lean into other people uh, and they give you what you're looking for. I mean, that is so incredibly powerful. And I don't know how else to emulate that or to replicate that, right? Like I can't create that on my own. It would be inauthentic. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can't just extract it from popular culture or, right. you know, watching a movie or, or yeah. like you get that feeling, but it's not, you don't get the depth. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's creating that relationship and, and creating space for that relationship. You get hurt like in any relationship, right? Like there's sure. always that risk, but, but when it's good, it's good. Um, you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My guest today is uh, Simran Singh. And after a quick break, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about his foray into being a writer of children's books. Stay tuned. You are the Moonlight, and you're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio. So welcome back, everyone. Uh, you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My guest today is Simran Singh. Um, Simran, your book, Fauja Singh Keeps Going, tells such an amazing story to children and families uh, everywhere. And I'm so curious, what did this kind of experience, especially in writing this book, um, you know, there's certainly lessons abound throughout the book for, for everyone, but what kind of lessons actually um, did you sort of take away from the process of, of writing the book and, and really um, conceptualizing it and, and making it uh, real? Yeah, I mean, so, so many lessons. I think the first, the first that comes to mind is that I, 
I came into children's book writing thinking it would be a, a piece of cake. <laughs> 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 and uh, oh man, it was it was a process. I, I think, and and this is, I mean, I'm happy to describe it for you, but it was, I mean, from from where it started to where it ended up, a completely different version of yeah. the story. And it's, I mean, it's the same story in the sense that it's a biography. So mm-hmm. so the the facts of the story are still the same. The the overall um, aspects of the story are the same, but you know, creating uh, the character and, and creating an emotional connection and, and what does it look like? Where do we, where do we create the, the sort of overall tension and the climactic, like that changed over. And I, I mean, it was yeah. all there in my first version. I think it's so yeah. much better now. So, yeah. so it, was, it was a collaborative effort and I had some really smart women, some South Asian women who are, um, who got it, who were just really good partners and that. So that's, I think that's in terms of process, a, a really big lesson. Um, in terms of um, life lessons, I mean, there, there are a ton throughout the book, but I think the, the most unexpected one came around trying to, um, trying to narrativize Fogessing's disability that he dealt with in his life mm. uh, in a way that did not fall into ableist tropes. And yeah. so, so the challenge was, um, and, and this is like what you get in, in most stories about disability, you, you try hard, you're, you're just, you have a disability, you try hard, you overcome it and, and all is good. And, and, and there are so many problems with that, with that. Sure. I, that I knew enough to, to recognize that when I was going in. Um, and, and the challenge was that that's actually for jazz authentic experience. Like he, yeah. he had a disability, his legs were incredibly weak. He was unable to walk for several years. Uh, and then he he was able to eventually practice practice and, and, and walk. And so I wanted to be true to that, but I also didn't know how to do that without falling into the the trap of of ableism. And so sure. that was incredibly hard. Um, my my editor uh, she understood the problem as well as I did. We couldn't figure it out on our own. Uh, we ended up bringing in. Uh, consultants, disability consultants, yeah. uh, to think through it, and so um, I mean, it was it was humbling on the one hand because you know I am an, an expert in diversity and inclusion and and teach about ableism, but you know I, I would have expected myself, right? I would have expected that I could figure it out, yeah. <laughs> um, and so that that was a really big lesson, that, and I've been learning so much uh, about uh, disability and ableism. Um, yeah ever ever since so that's been a really eye-opening experience for me was was the um concept or even um the idea of resilience and and um certainly the uh perception at least of this being a story about disability and yet it's it's so much more deep than that um were you ever able to meet foja singh i have i've met him a few times um and i yeah the last was about a year and a half ago Okay. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's really interesting talking because he was born in 1911. His yeah. disability really affected him when he was, you know, a, a young kid. So up until five, 10 years old. Uh, and at that time in, in uh, colonial India, in, in the village in Punjab, like there, there was no, <laughs> there was that, like forget a doctor, like there's, there's no sort of yeah. diagnosis and, and, and the normal experiences you're ostracized, you're alienated, you're outcast yeah. if you if you have a disability. And so um, so he doesn't he doesn't reflect on those experiences fondly. Yeah. Um, but he also like 
it was such a long time ago for him yeah. uh, that he doesn't know what the diagnosis is, but he doesn't even actually really care so much. At least that's the sense that I get from him. Yeah. Uh, and so that was really interesting for me to, for me to see too, because I had this perception of him, like this being such an important part of his life story. Yeah. Um, but, but he doesn't see it that way. And so again, like this is how it was just an interesting experience of, of realizing I'm, I'm placing my own biases onto, onto his life. And, and I need to be careful about how I do that. And were you, did this either meeting him or writing the book or even reflecting on the book, um, did it uh, bring about any changes or even um, self-realization when it comes to either parenting or for that matter, parenting as a sick American? Yeah, it, it really did. Um, you know, part of it was before I even decided to start writing the book. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story in, in 2016, uh, that's the year my older daughter was born. Um, six weeks after she was born, Bo Jessing was actually in New York City for a, uh, a race where he was a celebrity guest. And I, I went and took my daughter to meet him and he held her in his hands. Um, and when we talked, we sat in the living room and talked for about two hours. And, wow. and I remember thinking how cool would it be if my daughter could just absorb all this wisdom. And I was like, that's, that's all I could think the whole time we were yeah. talking. Yeah. Um, and, and especially these values of perseverance and, and resilience, as you were mentioning, like they're, they're so central to who he is as a person, like this, this, op, this boundless optimism and, and like really serious uh, challenges throughout his life that he's dealt with. Um, and so that, I think that was the moment when we were sitting, that, that was the moment when I decided to write the book. But the reason I wanted to write the book was because it really gave me fodder for how I wanted to raise my kids. Like I wanted these lessons to be passed to them. I, I think the other thing that I've been thinking about a lot more uh, as the book has come out is, is how to talk about uh, some of these challenging concepts with our kids. And so mm. when, when I started writing it, it was almost theoretical. Like my kids were way too young to, to begin these conversations. I mean, too young, meaning like they didn't, they, they didn't understand. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I think like three, at, at, it was around three that we started talking to our older daughter about race and she started noticing race. Sure. Um, and so we wanted to give her opportunities to be exposed to different experiences and then to ask whatever questions she wanted. Um, and so that definitely informed both how I wrote the book, but then also how now I, I sort of speak to my kids about these kinds of issues as, as we encounter them in our world. You know, I'm, I'm sure this is simplifying it a little bit, but um, how does that feel to be able to pull a book like that as a Sikh American, as a person of color off the library shelf and be able to share that with your daughter? Oh, amazing. I mean, that's the dream, right? Like growing up, couldn't have imagined it. It was, it was my dream always when I would go to libraries and bookstores to, to find a book with a Sikh character uh, and it'd be so painful. I mean, part of, right. part of the... Uh, unexpected experience of this book is, and I, maybe I should have expected this, uh, how many people in our community, not just Punjabi and Sikh, but also like South Asian generally, who were amazed to see a book that represents them. And, yeah. you know, I, I felt that personally, but I never really thought about it being a collective experience. Yeah. Um, but, but I think my, my reflection is for those who for those who know the pain of being uh, unrepresented and, and not feeling seen, feeling invisible, 
Um, there is so much joy that's been coming with just, I mean, just a book with a cover and the pictures inside, like who cares what the story is? Like, this is just, this is just us, right? Like it's, yeah. it's pretty cool. It's been really cool to see that. That's amazing. And I mean, the, the imagery, the, even the power of, of that representation, um, on a small and, and frankly on a large scale is terrific. So, mm. um, you're listening to trust me. I know what I'm doing. My guest today is Simran Singh. And after a quick break, we're going to come back and chat a little bit more about uh, racial justice and, and equity. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Jonita Gandhi, and you're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio. So welcome back, everyone. Uh, you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, and my guest today is uh, Simran Singh. Simran, I have to tell you, you are the first San Antonio native to be on my show. So um, in a year of many, many firsts, this is a one to celebrate for sure. Um, but, you know, I, I'm curious about one thing. When you share that with people or when people discover that, do they? Do you find them surprised? Um, you know, and and if they are surprised, does that say something about the you know sort of the work that needs to be done in in thinking about why they're surprised? Yeah, I mean, so so the most obvious uh, way of surprise is is the response of like people who intend to ask me where I'm really from, right? Like right. That, that, that whole conversation. Yeah. So, so where are you from? Or, or go back to where you came from. And I'm like, yeah. okay, San Antonio, I love that place. I'll go back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, that, that turns into its own thing. But, but it's actually, I mean, that, that probably feels more obvious to people. The more um, interesting one maybe is, is being in New York City where it's very progressive and I've, I'm, I, I'm like politically and socially progressive myself, um, and and so I'll be in conversation with people about justice issues or at an event, and and eventually it'll come up that I'm from Texas, and they'll be like, oh, are you, are you really one of us? Are are you, are you really yeah. here for these issues? And so, yeah, it it cuts in multiple ways, and so yeah, depending on depending on what context I'm in, uh, people have something to say about why I don't really fit <laughs> fit the profile of, of what they thought I was. Um, but yeah, it, you know, either either it's on the basis of of politics or on the basis of immigration or you know all, yeah. all these things. Like it's it's a really interesting experience. Does that speak to sort of the nature of conversation in this space, where you know naturally people want to find wedges, sort of break that perception that there is a you know, activism, but that activism can't be without at least finding the wedge there that like, well, well, really, you're, you're part of it, of the movement, or, um, you know, can you speak to that a little bit that like, you know, there's a con, it seems like it's an uphill battle sometimes. Yeah, exactly. I, I find, especially in, in activism today, there's, it's not always there, but there's, there's often a tendency to try and prove that you are, um, more with it than the people around you that you care more that you've been involved longer that you get the issues better yeah. right so like that's that's definitely there and my interest i mean is is the complete opposite like i have no interest in those wedges like like yeah. if people are like do you really belong here i'm like yeah and so do you right like, yeah. it's, it's like yeah. how, how do we how do we kind of make this into something bigger and and i, I think that it's just a reflection of my worldview and and, and the idea of uh creating more inclusive environments, right? Like I, I, part of the 
part of the push against like we're better and, and we know the answers um it, it just creates such a toxic environment even, even if the intentions are are good the 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 approach is uh really it causes a lot of pain to a lot of people so yeah i'm 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 really <laughs> intentional about pushing back against those narratives whenever i can let me ask you about this i mean you, you talk about this um that toxic uh culture and whether it's toxic or even just driven by a lot of passion um you know there, there's so many perceptions of what racial justice um and that movement mean and um, sometimes they can evoke, you know, pretty strong feelings of either passion or even overt anger. Um, so how how does the how do the words compassion and love and empathy um, how how do they get more highlighted to be part of the conversation? I mean, what's the what's the hopeful thrust to make those words more engaging? Yeah, well, I think I think that's that's a great way to to frame the question. I think. Part of the challenge is we we're fueled by our anger and our frustration, and then we figure out how to make compassion and love our vehicles, right? Like, how do we how how, how do we engage in an effective manner? Oh, well, let's be nonviolent, let's be loving, let's be compassionate. And to me, it has to be the other way around. Like, the foundation, the fuel, has to be the love and the compassion, the real deep concern for one another and then when when you go by that and like anger and frustration don't really enter into the equation but justice justice is what comes out and so i think that that to me is is the difference between uh, a lot of what i'm seeing in this country and, and around the world today in, in, in activist movements um that there's that they're being driven often by rage and i understand the rage and i think it's completely fair and completely justified and so there's there's no real criticism there but in terms of how do you actually produce justice i think like the greatest people who have walked on the war earth and who have actually gotten results uh in creating a more just society like they they have used love and compassion as the basis for everything that they do and then everything that it's it's almost like once you once you figure that out and, and, and you plant those seeds, like anything that grows from that is, is beautiful. And, and it can look all sorts of different ways and it can affect all sorts of different aspects of our lives. But, but, but it's sort of this, this garden that comes out as opposed to like, I, I don't know, something that's, that's more negative. You know, and I, I wonder as we, you know, hear the dialogue more and more and as we are hopefully moving the needle a little bit how do we bring the dialogue from merely saying that i'm not a racist to the consciousness of actually being anti-racist yeah i appreciate that question so I, I think for me at least i mean for so much of my life i was in that position of saying i'm not a racist and you know even even when i was being targeted in racism uh, my response so often um most of my childhood especially was was ignore it right turn the other cheek and that's a survival tactic and a safety method mechanism uh, but there's also something baked into that psychology uh that says you know just don't engage right like this is not this is not something to touch uh and it was after 9 11 really that i became conscious of the fact that if i didn't start doing something you know people i knew including people in my family that i loved could be killed 
right? Like the stakes all of a sudden just seem totally different. Uh, and that's when I think I really started to recognize that it's not enough to just, to just let things go, that we have to be more proactive. And so I think that's, I think when we realize that individually, and, and I think we all have to get there, uh, and, and, and we realize that the stakes are too high and the urgency is too great at this moment, um, then, then we find the reason to invest personally, right? We have so many competing interests and so many things to care about and so many problems in our world and in our lives. Uh, we, we need to figure out how to make this a priority. And then once we do, um, then the next steps feel much more natural, right? I think like a lot of issues in our lives, like the hardest part in the process is acknowledging yeah. that we are part of the problem and that we have a problem. And once we can do that, like it's so liberating, like you, you feel so free to engage and, and to, you, you want to work on it. And so I think, yeah, putting down the armor and letting go of the defense uh, and being open to the, to the possibility that we're part of the problem, I think is, is a huge step in the process. Well, and hopefully that, that box opening up became, becomes more of the motivational ignition, if you will, to sort of mm -hmm. really sort of allow that, that consciousness and that conversation to happen. And, you know, we, in a year that's been so strange with uh, all kinds of different complexities here in the U.S. and, and certainly from, uh, you know, many, many different arena where there's a, a lot not necessarily to be motivated about. What makes you both in this conversation and, and through the conversation of uh, justice, um, what makes you optimistic going forward? Yeah, that's usually, that's usually an easier question. And, and in this moment, like the, the optimism is hard. I mean, I, I know that it's part of my value set and, and I know yeah. it's something that I try and work on. Um, but sometimes it's hard. And, and right now it feels, it feels harder than, than usual. Um, I think when things are hard, one of the places I go um, is history. And so it's, it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Like, why would you look to the past in order to look forward? And, and you know, as a historian, um, I, find, I find it so helpful sometimes to get a bit of perspective, um, you know, it, especially in moments where things feel like this is the worst that the world has ever been and that everything's falling apart around us. Um, it's almost like, it's almost like you're, you're sort of cocooning yourself. Um, you're just like wrapped in your own, almost it's, it's like a self-centeredness. And the way to escape that is to, is to put yourself within a broader context. Well, Simran, um, if there's a palpable change and a sense of optimism and, and creating motivation around, uh, our communities, I think you're a big, big part of that. So, Thank you so much for being with us. It's been a real pleasure and a real joy to talk to you. I hope you'll come back and join us again. Thank you, Vic. Appreciate it. What up, people? This is Sonny Brown from Culture Shock, and you're listening to me on Ruckus Avenue Radio. <laughs>